Amen. Thank you, Tom, choir, kids, and thank you for your willingness to pray, your willingness to give, um, to enable people to go. It seems like credit is being put on my doorstep, but the reality is it's you and your willingness to go, your willingness to give to support these trips. I can't tell you how many trips that we have made that the people had very minimal expense because you uh, saw fit to support that and to give to that and to, to uphold them in prayer. So uh, I thank you for your willingness to support the mission that Christ has left us here to accomplish. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. During these five weeks in October, we are looking at each of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. This is Reformation Month. And we are looking at the five solas that, that basically characterize that Protestant Reformation. We've already looked at sola scriptura, which is Scripture alone. Scripture alone is God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and sole authority for the church. We've looked at solus Christus, which is Christ alone. Christ alone is the way that the ungodly are justified. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Last week we saw sola fide, the belief that we as Christians receive the redemption Christ has accomplished sola fide, through faith alone. And today we're going to focus on sola gratia, Grace alone, which affirms that all of our salvation from beginning to end is by grace and grace alone. And then next week, we'll finish up with the last of the five solas, soli deo gloria. We're going to look this morning at Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, as we consider Sola gratia, grace alone. And some of you need to listen very, very closely. I've tried to share the gospel message clearly and repeatedly for the past four years. I've tried to move you as an individual to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. I've done the best that I can do, which is insufficient, we know. But I've done the best that I can do to alert you to any deception that you may have fallen for. And apparently I've done a pretty good job because I've gotten five false prophet shirts at this point. <laughs> Thankfully they're not all the same. So I almost have one for each day of the week. I've done the best that I can do to alert you to any deception that you may have fallen for. I've done my best to shake you free from any distraction you were enamored with. I've done my best to help those that sit 
under the sound of my voice, week after week, disinterested, to see the greater treasure of Jesus Christ. I've tried to clarify the biblical gospel for those that have been disillusioned, unfortunately, by Western Christianity and Western Christians and hypocrites and churches that aren't biblical. And some have responded and and they found peace, they found assurance. Some have rejected the message and just written it off. They're waiting for the next guy. Hope he says something different. But there's some of you that are trapped in the middle. You haven't rejected it and you haven't received it and embraced it. But you're caught in the middle and you're stuck in a place of doubt. And you're stuck in a place of discouragement. And you can't seem to find peace. You can't seem to find assurance. And you are struggling. And this message is going to help you this morning. So pay close attention Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. It says, And you were dead. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come we might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, 4, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as as a result of works, so that no one may boast, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning to help us to hear your voice. To help us to see your truth. To help us to understand. To help us to believe. And God, that you would, in spite of me, speak. That your spirit would breathe upon us and that you would speak to us and that your will would be accomplished in this place. Those that have been deceived by false teaching, God, we pray that you would help them to see. Those that have been disillusioned by hypocrites and unbiblical churches, we pray that you would awaken them to the truth. Those that are distracted with the uselessness and nothingness of so much of this world, I pray that you would show them the great treasure of Jesus. For those that don't 
seem to be interested. God, I pray that you would help them to know Christ as their greatest treasure. But specifically this morning, for those that are struggling with doubt and uncertainty and a lack of assurance, I pray that you would help them to see grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 2 starts off quite encouraging. (laughs) Thankfully to the church in Ephesus, it was written in the past tense. You were, you were, you were, once were. And hopefully for most of you, if not the majority of you, it's past tense as well. But it's true of all of us at some point, either in the past or in the present. How are we characterized according to the Holy Spirit who wrote through Paul's pen? We're characterized, first of all, by missteps in verse 1. It says, you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses. And trespasses really points us to a blunder, so to speak. It's to to fall away, it's to misstep, it's to slip up. So you're walking along and you think you're on your leased property and you happen to step across the line, you aren't sure, and you walk into your neighbor's uh, food plot that he's hunting in and he's protective and he charges you with trespassing. You didn't mean to go in his food plot, you just misstepped, you crossed the line. And so often we are characterized by missteps. I want you to turn back to 2 Samuel. I think this may be one of the clearest indications of missteps in the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And not only do we see a misstep, but we see that God doesn't say, Oh, it was just a misstep. Let's sweep that under the rug and forget all about it. That's not how it works. A misstep, a trespass, a slip-up, a blunder is offensive to God. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is retrieving the Ark of the Covenant. Now, God has given very specific directions on how the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be transported. Poles were supposed to be placed through the rings. The priests were supposed to carry the poles on their shoulders. No one, high priest, priest, prophet king is supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant because on the Ark of the Covenant dwelled the glory of God, the very presence of God. Finally, they've gotten the Ark of the Covenant back. It's a huge celebration. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah. To bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name. The very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim on top of the ark of the covenant. That's where the presence of God dwelled. Verse 3, they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Okay, so we've got a little bit of a problematic transportation here. We're carrying it from this house that's on a hill. It's a long way. Let's let's use some common sense here, and let's put it on 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 a cart. And we won't just use any cart. We won't use a cart that's hauled wheat or grain. Or, or trash, or, any, or even gold and silver. We're going to make a brand new cart, and we're going to put it on there. 
And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. I mean, so, so they've been hanging out with this ark for a while. It's been in the house of Abinadab. So we're going to let the sons of Abinadab, who, who've been around this thing, lead the way. So Uzzah and Ahio lead the way as they place the ark on a cart and they begin to transport it. Verse 4, so they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it. And why, Uzzah, why did you touch the ark of God? You know you're not supposed to touch the ark of God. You know that's where the presence of God resides. Well, Samuel's glad you asked. Says Uzzah, reached out and touched, reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. In other words, we had a little animal confusion. The cart rocks, the ark almost gets upset and falls off into the filthy, muddy dirt outside of Nacon's threshing floor. And Uzzah does what any good red-blooded man who loved the Lord would do. And he reached out and he kept that ark from falling into the dirt. At this point, we expect God to go, thanks, Uzzah. You saved the day. And that's because every one of us think our hand is cleaner than the dirt. In the eyes of God. The reality is the dirt has never sinned against God. The dirt has never rebelled against God. But that hand of yours is quite offensive. And I would propose to you the ark would have been better off in the dirt than touched with a human hand that had sinned against Almighty God. And verse 7 says, The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence and he died there by the ark of God. Was Uzzah trying to make God angry? Was Uzzah trying to do a bad thing? But he misstepped. He trespassed. He crossed the line. He slipped up. He messed up. And he paid the price. The wages of sin is death. And we are characterized like Uzzah by missteps, trespasses, slip-ups, blunders. We're also characterized by short steps. In verse 1 it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. A sin is literally missing the mark. It's falling short. It's a short step. You ever tried to step up on a step and miss a step? (laughs) Pull you back out, I'll tell you. It's just like a little step. You missed it, but everything in you thought you were on the step. And you fell short. And you throw your lower back out and you hop around for two or three weeks, right? If you're over 40, you know what I'm talking about. If you're under 40, you're going, I don't understand. (laughs) 
This is the most comprehensive term for all types of sin. It's falling short, missing the mark. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I love the way the New Living Translation translates that. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glorious standard of God. That's what sin is. God has a glorious standard. And that glorious standard is absolute perfection, absolute holiness, absolute sinlessness. That means that if we're going to meet God's standard, we have to obey every command of God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year for every year of our life. And how many of us have fallen short of that? We all have, have we not? We're characterized by short steps. We're characterized by being in step in verse number 2. Not in step with God, though. Verse 2 says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You ever wondered how Hollywood or some famous athlete or some famous singer can come out wearing the ugliest, most homely, most tacky, most gaudy, most foolish clothing. And within a month, half of society is wearing the most ugly, gaudy, homely, tacky clothing you've ever seen. You want to know why that is? Because we just like to follow the crowd. Those little cars that came out that Fast and Furious movie that I didn't see, but I heard enough about and they drove them little cars with no mufflers. And then these guys start running up and down the road in these cars with no mufflers. I'm like, and then we got country singers that come out with the back end of their truck squatted down. Like, you're going to pull something with that, redneck, let me tell you. <laughs> and everybody wants to drive around, can't see over the hood, you know, can't pull nothing. I'm like, what? And the, we just get caught up in the course of this world. We talk like the world, we think like the world, we dress like the world. We want what the world has. We're just caught up in the course of this world. And the scary thing is, it's not just harmless. Oh, well, the world's just doing this, this kind of thing. And, you know, the world's doing that kind of thing. It goes on and says, According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, the devil is behind those squatted trucks. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying I might would say that outside the pulpit, but I won't say it in the pulpit. The devil's not behind the squatted trucks, but the devil is behind the course of this world and that everybody seems to just get caught up in so easily. And that's how we get characterized. We get characterized by doing what everybody else around us is doing and everybody else around us is doing what the rest of the world is doing and the rest of the world is doing it because up ahead beating the drum that everybody is following is the devil himself and nobody even seems to realize it. He used to disguise himself as an angel of light. Now he just disguises himself as somebody cool. And that's what I want to be. Somebody successful. Somebody prosperous. Somebody powerful. Somebody popular. And we just get in line and step with the world. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 tells us that we need to enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. If, you are going with the, if you're going with the crowd, people, 
That should be a red flag. If you're watching what the crowd watches, listening to the music that the crowd listens to, dressing like the crowd, spending your money like the crowd, investing your time like the crowd, don't look at me and say, well, then I'm a fuddy-duddy. I'm just telling you, you're on the wrong road. And that road doesn't lead to popularity and, and power and prosperity. It leads to destruction, Jesus said. The devil is smooth. He's got everybody blind, deaf, and dumb and happy to be that way. We're like a bunch of dead, dead wood in a river floating downstream. You ever seen dead wood in a river going upstream? If you have, a fish has hung on it and he's taking it up there because it just goes with the flow. And that's how so much of our society is. So much of our world is. So much of our church is. So many of our young people are just going with the flow. I'll go to Sunday school, I'll go to church, I'll check my box and just go with the flow. We're characterized by missteps, trespasses. We're characterized by short steps, sins. We're characterized as instep with the world. We're characterized as those who overstep. Look in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's an ugly word, transgressions. Transgressions means law-breaking we, we have the law, we know the law, we break the law. This just, this just takes it to another level. It's one thing to misstep. It's one thing to fall short in the short step. It's one thing just to go with the crowd. All of that's enough to condemn us. But it's another thing to transgress and to overstep. And, and for, the, for the neighbor that hunts next to you to put a big fence up that says, this is my property, my food plot's right here, don't cross the fence, and you crawl through the fence. Then you haven't wandered on his property, you've crawled through the fence to go hunting on his property. That's a transgression. The law is there. And the law doesn't make men sinners. You don't have to have a law to be a sinner. The law makes men transgressors, breakers of law. And therefore exceedingly sinful. Second Peter 2.16 says he, talking about Balaam in the Old Testament, received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey speaking with a voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. What on earth is this even talking about? Well, Balaam was a prophet of God. Israelites were multiplying like Rabbits in the land. Balak, king of Midian, gets upset, nervous. He sends for Balaam. He wants him to pronounce a curse on the children of Israel. He says, I'm going to pay you the normal going wage for a curse. And Balaam says, well, let me talk to the Lord about it. The Lord said, don't you go with that guy. The next day, he sends some more people back and says, look, I'm going to give you a whole lot extra if you'll do this. And in his heart, Balaam's like, man, I sure would like to go bring in the gold and the silver. And the Lord says, go on ahead. That's how he said it in Hebrew. He said, go on ahead. <laughs> he didn't say, go with my blessing, Balaam. He said, go on ahead. So Balaam went on ahead. He gets on his donkey. And they're walking along. And in the pathway stands the angel of the Lord, who we know most of the time in the Old Testament is who? Jesus, with a flaming sword. And the donkey says, I ain't going by there. And, and she goes off into the field. Balaam starts whipping this donkey. 
puts her back in the path. So the angel of the Lord moves back a bit, and he puts himself between a wall. Wall on one side, wall on the other. And donkey sees him again, decides she can't get away from him this time, so she crushes Balaam's foot into the wall to try to squeeze next to the wall. And Balaam really gets upset then, just like you would, and he starts beating the donkey. And then the angel of the Lord backs up a little more into a pathway there's no room to turn in. And the donkey squares head to head with the angel of the Lord that she sees, but Balaam doesn't, and she falls down and just lays down under Balaam. And he starts whipping her and talking ugly to her. And finally, the donkey speaks. And this is an amazing part of the, the story. I'm going to be long-winded this morning, so if you're starving, you're going to need to go. Um, the amazing part, I've only got one more week. You can't run me off. Um, <laughs> the donkey speaks to Balaam and says, Why are you hitting me? Have I ever done this to you before in all the years you've been riding me? And Balaam, this, is, this, is a, this guy's crazy. Because at this point, I'm running. The other way, this donkey is speaking. I've lost my mind or this or something. Balaam says, no, you've made a fool out of me for the last time. He's talking back. What's worse than a donkey talking to you? You talking back to the donkey. Okay. You made a fool out of me. And then I love this. Jesus, the angel of the Lord, speaks up and he says, hey, your donkey went to the field, crushed your foot, and laid down under you because she saw me in the pathway. And then he said, if she hadn't, and you'd have come my way, I would have killed you and spared her. You want to talk about humbling? Should be humbling to a prophet when the Lord Jesus says, oh, if she hadn't have done this for you, I'd have killed you in the pathway. And I'd have let your donkey go. Your donkey's got better sense than you do. This guy's just transgressing. He's, he wants the money. Lord said, don't go. Then he said, go on ahead. So he went ahead and, he, and he's standing in his way. And he's standing in his way and he just keeps on whipping the donkey back in the pathway. And that's how we are. The law says no and we say, but I want to. So we're going to do it anyway. And you know you've all done that. Transgress. We overstep. Then he just summarizes it in verse 3. Among them... We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He's saying we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're caught up in the course of this world. We transgress against the law of God. We are by nature what the rest of the world is by nature. Children of wrath, characterized by the flesh, the old Adam that we learned about a couple of weeks ago. What does he look like? Galatians 5, 19-21. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, in case he didn't get you with one of them. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Thankfully, he said practice those things, because we all do those things sometimes, don't we? They kind of pop up. But those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're by nature children of wrath. And the whole point of these first three verses is to show us that we act like what we are. And what we are is spiritually dead. Verse 1 starts out with, you were dead. 
You were dead. Not sick. Not paralyzed. Not under the weather. But dead. And what can a dead person do? What can a dead person do? I'll tell you one thing a dead person doesn't do. A dead person doesn't reach out for things. Can you imagine walking through the funeral home, visitation night? You walk up by the casket, look down at your old friend, and all of a sudden out of the Catholic comes his hand, he grabs you by the collar and pulls you down. And then the funeral director has the audacity to walk up and pry his hand off of you and say, just let me shut this thing down. It's okay, this happens sometimes. You're going to say, no, 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 that doesn't happen, right? We'd be horrified if that happened because dead people don't reach out and do stuff like that. We got to get this picture out of our head. Here's the picture. That salvation consists of a drowning man struggling for life. That God throws a life raft to. You were not drowning until God threw you a lifeline. You were drowned at the bottom of the ocean, lifeless, hopeless, and helpless. And just like a dead person doesn't reach out of his casket at the visitation, and just like a dead person doesn't cling to a lifeline in the ocean, a spiritually dead person doesn't, can't do anything to correct the problem God has with them. No, God did not throw you a lifeline that you cling to. Jesus, God in the flesh, swam to the bottom of the ocean, got you by the nap of the neck, And brought you to the surface. And you want me to say he did CPR on you. But you were dead. He didn't produce CPR on you and just bring you back to life. From the verge of death. No, you were dead. You were gone. And dead people can't do anything. And that's us. That's where Ephesians 1, 2, 1 to 3 leaves us. And that's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, what, what hope do we have? If I'm, if I'm characterized by missteps and short steps and, and instep with the devil and the world and, and oversteps and I'm dead and I'm at the bottom of the ocean, lifeless, helpless, hopeless, I can't do anything to correct the problem God has with me. What do, what do I do? What's my hope? Verse 4, but God. But God, there's the hope. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved. We have to be made alive. Go to Ezekiel 37. You know when we go into Ezekiel, things are to get interesting, right? Ezekiel chapter 37 Ezekiel, 
Ezekiel gives a, a, an account of a vision he had of the Lord that was pointing him to Israel being raised up as a mighty people for God. But I want to just propose to you that this is more than Israel being raised up as a mighty people for God. I think this is a picture of society that God raises up the church, the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, and makes them a mighty army. And I want you to see how he does it. He does it the same way in Ezekiel as he does it in Ephesians chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me, brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. All right, Ezekiel 37, verse 1, he's in a valley full of bones. How many of you know that bones means somebody's been gone a while? These aren't People that have passed out, they're not on ICU, they're not on, you know, the respirator, they're not on life support, they gone. Bones, bleached in the sun. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. Verse 3 said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And that's when I would have answered, not on your life. But Ezekiel was more of a man of God, and he said, Oh, Lord God, you know. Again, verse 4, he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. Now, how many of them bones heard him say any of that? I don't think bones have ears if they've been out there a while, right? They didn't hear anything. But yet Ezekiel was told to preach to the bones every Sunday all around the globe when the gospel message is preached to lost people. You're preaching to dead bones. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead in our transgressions. Preaching to a graveyard. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Verse 7. So I preached. I didn't say, God, this is ridiculous. I just did it. I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Listen, this is, this is the joy of the preacher. He's preaching to the dry bones. He's preaching to the dead and their trespasses and sins. And he starts to hear a little noise. He starts to hear a little rattle. Something's going on. The Spirit of God is beginning to do a work in the hearts and the minds and in the lives of the lost. In verse 9, he said to me, prophesy to the breath. And listen, that Hebrew word breath can also be translated spirit. Wind, breath, spirit. Interchangeable. So we could say, prophesy to the spirit. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the spirit, 
Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O Spirit, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath or the Spirit came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is a picture of the but God. We are a bunch of dead, dry bones, and the preaching of the gospel goes out to the dead bones that can't hear, can't respond, can't do anything, and then a little noise and a little rattling occurs because God gets into the message, and God speaks through the preacher, and God picks up the Word, and then before you know it, those bones begin to come together, and the Spirit of God breathes on them and they come back to life but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive by grace you've been saved in verse 6 he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and you notice this he makes us alive and he gets us out of the course of this world he raises us up and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's one of the ways you know you've been brought to life. You step out of the course of this world. You stop following the prince of the power there. And you get raised up. And you put your eyes on Jesus. You tune your ear to Jesus. You tune your heart to Jesus. So that in the ages to come. He might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places in Christ. We get our minds off of this world. And put them in the heavenly places. Verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. If you are dead, dry bones, can't do anything. And God raises you up and breathes life into you. What did you do to get that? What did you do to deserve that? It was by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. The grace is not of yourselves. The faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works. So that no one may boast sola gratia grace alone. In the words of Carl Truman, salvation is entirely a work of God in its origin, execution, and consummation. Salvation is something God does. And you want to know why we have a Reformation Month? You know what? We want to know why we have Martin Luther nail 95 Thesis to the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany, and, and try to reform the Catholic Church? That didn't go well, so we had a Protestant Reformation. Here's one of the many reasons the Reformation was necessary. Listen to the sixth session of Trent, Canon 30. This is going to be tough, but bear with me, because this is going to show you why we need to stay Protestant and not get caught up in the ecumenical movement and link arms with the Pope. If there's not enough reasons. This is the sixth session of Trent, Canon 30. If anyone saith that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted, and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise or such way, that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory, before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. Leave that up there for just a minute. Here's what the sixth session of Trent Canon 30 said. If there's a person who says that you are justified by grace and the repentant sinner is immediately forgiven all of their sins and all of the punishment related to those sins is now removed and they don't have to do some work in this world, some penance in this world, or spend some time in purgatory to finish paying for their sins, that person is anathema, cursed, headed for hell. You know what the Catholic Church just said? Sola gratia? No, sir. You have to be 
You have to be doing the sacraments. You have to be doing penance. You might have to spend some time paying for your sin because Jesus is not enough. How does that set with you? How does that set with you? Does that, if that sets bad with you, just give me a, mm-hmm, that's bad. All right, now let me just, let me just say this. We're all going, uh-huh, that sets bad with me. Naughty Catholics. Council of Trent. But practically, we act exactly the same. And this is why some of you are struggling with doubt and despair. I want you to listen now. If you've zoned out, you, I lost you to Ezekiel or Balaam and his donkey or any of that. I want you to listen to me. Here's what we do. We preach soli gratia and we say, yes, amen. We say that it's by grace alone that we're saved. But practically, here's what we practically believe. That it's grace plus a sinner's prayer. Prayed with the right amount of sincerity. Because some of you go, well, you know, I, I know I prayed a prayer, but I don't know that I really meant the prayer like I should have meant the prayer. I don't know. We believe it's, it's grace alone, but practically we believe it's grace plus baptism. Or grace plus church attendance. Or grace plus daily prayer and Bible study. Or grace plus overcoming every one of your sins all the time. Or grace plus obedience. You walk around the room in virtually any Baptist church and you say, why do you think you're going to heaven? And how many people start with, because I might as well be Catholic. Because I'm doing some penance and, and I'm trying to pay for my sin and I'm trying to pay off my sin debt and I'm trying to make God happy by keeping the sacraments and I'm, I'm trying to do all these things because I, 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 in the words of Martin Luther, he who does not receive salvation purely through grace, independently of all good works, certainly will never secure it. And that's why some of you have never secured it yet. And you don't have assurance and you don't have peace because you're mingling sola gratia with your good works. Do you wrestle and struggle with your salvation? If you're one of those people, then you are likely looking at the wrong thing. You are looking most likely at yourself. And here's what you're saying to yourself on a daily basis. Am I sorry enough? I mean, am I really sorry enough for my sin? How many of you this morning would stand with me and say, I am sufficiently sorry for all of the ways I've sinned against God? Anybody? Anybody want to stand up and say, you know, that's me. I am sufficiently sorry for every sin I've ever committed against God. Anybody here sorry enough? Or you might ask, am I praying enough? How many of you think you're praying enough? Like, really, you, you're praying enough? Couldn't pray some more? How many of you think you're in the Word of God enough? You read the Bible enough? You know the Bible well enough? How many of you are working hard enough for Jesus? You're working as hard as Jesus deserves you to work for Him. 
I mean, listen, now if you think you're working hard enough for Jesus, or you think you're praying enough for Jesus, or you're in the Bible enough for Jesus, or you're sorry enough for Jesus, you don't have a clear picture of the holiness of Jesus and that expectation and your sinfulness and shortcomings. That's all there is to it. How many of you think you're knowledgeable enough, or that you're good enough, or that you've been changed enough? You know, if we're, if we're honest and we're right, the answers are always, no, I'm not enough. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't given enough. I haven't read the Word enough. I haven't attended church enough. I haven't been good enough. I haven't been sorry enough. I haven't been obedient enough. Listen to me. Listen to me. You are not enough. And you will never be enough. So if that's you that's doubting and wondering, how can I have assurance? Why can't I have peace with God? And you're always asking, am I enough? The answer is always going to be, no, you will never, ever, ever be enough. So stop asking that question. It's the wrong question. And start asking this question that always has yes as the answer. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus praying enough for you? Is Jesus, is Jesus obedient enough for you? Has Jesus paid the penalty for your sin enough? Is Jesus interceding enough? Is Jesus enough? And the answer is always, always yes. So if you're doubting this morning, if you're struggling this morning, you need to get your eyes off of yourself and put them on Jesus because you will never be sufficient. You will never be enough. But Jesus is always enough. You can keep trying to be good enough. You can keep trying to be acceptable enough. You can keep trying to be sincere enough. And you can live a miserable, miserable life. Or you can look to Jesus as your enough. Doubter, doubter, believe that Jesus is enough. Believe that Jesus is enough. And that He's enough to get you to heaven. Is Jesus enough to get you to heaven? What do you need to add to Jesus to get you to heaven? Thief on the cross doesn't know much of anything except that Jesus said, Today you'll be with me. And I bet when he got to heaven, Jesus was right there. And he couldn't answer a question. He didn't know which end was up. But Jesus was with him. Some of you need to get your eyes off of yourself and put them on Jesus. You're not enough. You're dead. But Jesus is enough to make you alive and to seat you with Him. Seat you with Him in heavenly places. And here's what you need to say as we close. When Satan tempts me to despair, And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is justified to look on him. And pardon me. To look on him. And pardon me. Father, we thank you for your grace, your grace, your grace. And I pray now specifically for those in this room who are struggling to have peace and assurance with you. And I pray that you would help them to stop looking at themselves 
and just look to Jesus. Help them to admit they're not enough. They'll never be enough. They'll never do enough. But that Jesus is more than enough. Give them peace and give them release this morning. As they realize that it is sola gratia, grace alone, that brings them life in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.